Hello, and welcome to another Paradox podcast. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast is the next in a series of teaser interviews that I'm doing with our Free Speech and Medicine Conference invited speakers. I'm doing these to give you a sense of who our speakers are and a little bit about what they plan to talk about. Today's interview is with Sean Watley. Sean is a pretty amazing guy. He has the intellectual range to go from subjects like medical administration to philosophy and political science. Even more impressively to someone like me, he has the range of focus to go from the rapid fire job of ER doc to writing whole books. Most ER docs I know can't concentrate on the same thing for more than about 15 minutes at a time. It's why we go into the field in the first place. Sean is a fellow of the McDonald Laurier Institute. He's the author of two books. He's a former very successful head of ER and he's a currently practicing doctor. Sean and I talk about several topics. Are doctors independent agents or are they cogs in a healthcare machine? Is private care dangerous and quote US style or is it something that we need in order for our system to survive? Was Medicare a great step forward and the be all and end all of Canadian culture or does it have some deep fundamental flaws? Sean has some very interesting and well thought out ideas on all these subjects. You can read his work at seanwatley.com. And for those of you only listening, that's S-H-A-W-N-W-H-A-T-L-E-Y, seanwatley.com. Definitely check him out. We look forward to having Sean at our Free Speech and Medicine conference at the end of October in Cape Breton. Remember to check it out at freespeechandmedicine.com. And I hope you enjoy this interview with Sean Watley. Uh, thanks a lot, for Sean, for making the time for, uh, to talk to me today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, Chris. Great. Um, I'm doing a series of podcast interviews with our speakers who will be talking at the uh, Free Speech and Medicine Conference, October 20th to 30th in Bedeck. And we were very happy. Sean was actually the first speaker I asked and uh, the first person I thought of and was very happy that he said yes. Um, and I wanted to give him a chance to let our listeners know uh, a little bit about him and what he's going to talk about. So, Sean, maybe maybe you could start off by saying sort of who are you, where are you from, what do you do? Yeah, brilliant. Thanks, Chris. And thanks to you and Julie for uh, having the time and energy invested into setting this up. I, I've tried to set up conferences and failed at it, actually. And so the fact that you're doing it and it's working is just amazing. I, I thank you guys for that. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, I'm right now I'm just a family doc, a rural family doc. I shouldn't say just, it's it's a hard job, um, but it's nothing fancy. We are an academic uh, family health team. We're rural, but not remote. But most of my career of the last uh, 22 years or so has been in and out of administrative type positions, leadership positions. I've spent an awful lot of time in medical politics, sat on the board of the Ontario Medical Association, the Canadian Medical Association, sat on committees and boards when we used to have uh, local health integration networks. So really kind of got interested in how the system works around us. And I, I wouldn't say that I was born with that interest. It really kind of came out of frustration from seeing, okay, why isn't this working? Why is this so hard? Okay, I'll become chief of the department. Okay, why isn't this working? Why is it, okay, I'll become program director. And, and to be clear, there weren't, weren't any other people applying for these jobs. So it's not like I, I beat people out, but that's kind of my background. And then I ended up uh, writing a few books about it. And so I ended up having the opportunity to 
talk about it and write about it. I'm part of a think tank right now, a uh, uh, public policy think tank, uh, McDonald Laurier Institute. And just one thing rolls into the next. And once you go down this rabbit hole of policy and politics, there's no going back. And it's awesome. I'd encourage anyone to do it. Right on. So, uh, so yeah, is it, I think it's fair to say you're a very well-read man in uh, political science and philosophy, as well as being, you know, an experienced doc and administrator. Is that, is that fair? You seem to have quite an interest in these subjects. I do have an interest. I am well read, but let me tell you, I have bought two copies of the same book at least twice now. So just because you've read a book doesn't mean you remember. It's so embarrassing. In fact, one book, I can pull it off the shelf. It was two different versions and I made notes and highlighted and stars in the margin and everything. And, and then I was going through my bookshelf and I was like, oh my goodness. Oh, I have the same title. <laughs> it was a, it was a book from the 1920s, and I had read it about uh, 10 years ago, and then again five years ago, and uh, yeah, I'd completely forgotten it. So don't don't be impressed because someone's read books. It doesn't mean they remembered them. We'll we'll, we'll test you for dementia when you're down at Kipper. That's right. <laughs> um, but uh, so you 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 came onto my radar. I'd heard you on the news a few times as a, as a talking head and I'd heard your name here and there. Um, but maybe of, of most interest, I, I've read one and a half of your books so far, but uh, one of your books in particular, When Politics Comes Before Patience. Um, can you tell us just a little bit about that and, and what it's about? Yeah. So actually um, I started writing that book with the view to coming up with this beautiful plan, a recipe to how, for how to fix healthcare in Canada. And this book started growing and growing and growing, you know, 500, 600, 700 pages. It's just, and so then I realized, no, we got to chop this in half and we'll look at what are we failing at or what are we doing well? And why are we getting the results we're getting? And so that's where this book comes from. And the title really kind of says it all when politics comes before patients. And I, I think, you know, whenever I'm getting interviewed on the radio about it, I, I will say we've had Medicare since the late 1960s, right? Medical Care Act passed 1966. And then between 68 and 72, it rolled out across Canada. And so we've had over 50 years to try this experiment. And so maybe it's a great opportunity, I think it is a great opportunity, um, to ask ourselves whether or not Medicare is delivering the outcomes we had hoped for it. Does it put patients first? Does it improve care for all? Does everyone actually have the same access, right? Care regardless of ability to pay. That's the mantra you hear over and over. That's why we're so famous. Well, is that actually true? Does the literature support it? And actually the literature doesn't support it. Mm -hmm. If you have connections in the system or you're wealthy or well-known, you're a privileged patient, you get better access. There's no question. It's not this wonderfully efficient system that we actually all thought it was. In fact, it was built on a false premise. And you're going to have to cut me off here, Chris, but Tommy Douglas no, said, I'm... you know, I would have lost my leg except for a surgeon coming by, you know, it, it, because I was poor and my parents were poor. And We've heard this story over and over and over. I spend a whole chapter actually unpacking it. Essentially, Tommy Douglas was saying that doctors would cut off the leg of young children if their parents couldn't pay for it, even if there was a treatment that was the standard of care that did not include amputation. So doctors would amputate instead of giving the standard of care if the patient mm -hmm. was poor. 
I mean, on what planet did that come from? Mm -hmm. the, the College of Physicians and Surgeons um, was in place when Tommy Douglas had this problem. We had standard of care. We had standard of practice. We, this was in the 1960s that he's telling this story. And even today in my emergency department, people come in without OHIP coverage or they come from Quebec. I know they won't get, be able to, uh, to pay for care. And so he was attacking life or limb, right? In medicine, everything is about you save life or limb life or limb, everything's life or limb, all your ATLS, ACLS courses. And he was saying that doctors would sacrifice a limb for money. That is simply not true. And so anyways, I'm getting all excited here, but mm -hmm. <laughs> this was a core problem for me to think that this central narrative hasn't been addressed. Doctors, and when I present this at conferences, doctors will say like, oh my God, like where, where is this coming from? <laughs> this is not true. And it never, and yet we think, oh yeah, no, prior to 1970, this was true, right? Their docs would just change the standard of care if there was a poor patient. That, that's simply not true for issues around life or limb. Now for elective surgery, if you said, well, you know, this, this can wait or we can, uh, you can pay for it and get it now, that's a whole separate discussion, but that's not what Tommy Douglas was talking about. He was addressing the issue of losing your leg or your life. And he used that line over and over. No child should lose his leg or his life. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's looking at those presuppositions, the central pillars that our system is built on and saying, what, what's going on with those? And then finally, the second half of the book looks at what sort of thought processes get us these kind of outcomes. And one of them, for example, is managerialism. The idea that expert managers will do a much better job than everybody else at running a system. We just need to get more and more experts and expand the power that they have, you know, get managerialism into every nook and cranny of the system. And then finally our system will be rational and efficient and, and kind. And, you know, it, it's just not true. And there's a lot of literature saying why it isn't true. So that's what the book's about. It kind of gets into the, the concepts behind the whole package that we see. I talk about care, coordination, culture, and concepts. Most of the discussion around healthcare in Canada is around care and coordination, right? How did it happen at the bedside for you and whether or not you had to run around and wait in line to actually get the care. So care and coordination. But beneath that, there's a culture and the culture is just what's accepted as normal. If you start your meetings late in your hospital, you have a culture of lateness in your hospital. No one wrote an article about it or set a policy or anything. It's just that's that's normal within your culture. So there are normal ideas within Medicare, the culture of Medicare. For example, the idea that an administrator or uh, a civil servant knows more about your care than you and your doctor. Mm -hmm. And so care, coordination, culture. And then beneath that, though, is concepts. So what presuppositions, what concepts inform that culture. So if you have a lateness culture at your work, maybe the concept is it's rude to be on time because we aren't being kind to the people who are having a hard time getting into the meeting. Mm. Or, or maybe you're just, you know, you really want to start meetings late because it's more laid back and it's friendly and it's kind. There are always ideas that inform cultures. So that's kind of where the book takes off. And uh, now I'm working on the next half of the book to say, what can we do to help fix our system? I don't believe our system can be fixed, but what can we do to improve it without trying to treat it like a cake? And then we're just going to fix the recipe. Gotcha. 
Gotcha. So yeah, that should be easy. How do we fix Medicare? Um, yeah, it's interesting. You know, just a bunch of things go through my mind when you're talking about that. So the, I was, when I first started in med school in 93, there were still, still some, some older docs around who were able to talk very um, clearly about having worked before Medicare and after, and they had stories that I still remember. And, and I, I realized the, the, the stories that I had been told, the Tommy Douglas story was not true. These, were, these doctors were good people. They never let anybody go without care. Indigent people always got care somehow, you know, and that, that was just a, a given. And then the story kind of changed. And over the years, it was like, oh, my God, if we ever didn't have universal health care in exactly the same system we do now, then everything would fall apart and people would die in the streets. Um, one of the things that I think hardly any Canadians know, and I include doctors and nurses and healthcare people um, in this, but um, one of the things that I think is not well understood is the difference between publicly funded care and publicly provided care, i.e., you know, we, we rail on about how bad the American system is and how we will not that, but nobody remembers that most of Europe has systems where there's public funding, i.e. You're, you're, you're insured by the government, but private provision of care. There's private hospitals, private clinics, private doctors, and they basically, at this point, I think it's fair to say they all function better than we do. Is that is that fair to say? Or? Oh, yeah, no, that's very fair to say. There are 28 universal healthcare systems around the world. And I love the fact that you've talked about public and private. We don't even bother defining what those terms mean. We just jump in and say public's good, private's bad, end of story. And at the same time, we have people saying, oh, but we have all this privately delivered care. Every doctor's office is a private institution. So I, I usually, when I get into this with, you know, if someone asks this question, I try to say, what do we what do you mean by public? And usually people will say, okay, the post office. The post office is clearly a public institution. Government owns and runs and operates it. A private institution, we have so few purely private institutions in Canada that we actually struggle to find an example because we're so mm -hmm. heavily regulated with everything, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so if the extreme end of private would be your daughter's lemonade stand, she decides when she's going to open it up. She decides how many lemons go into the lemon juice and how many ice cubes and how many cups. And she decides the cost. And if she doesn't like your neighbor coming to buy, she says, no, I'm not selling you lemonade. Go away. And so that's the extreme end of private. But in Canada and in every country, in fairness, there's going to be some level of regulations. No, your, your lemonade table has to be six feet long and two feet wide, and the lemonade has to be at whatever degree Celsius. And as we layer on more and more regulations and stipulations, labor relation, regulations, the institution or the, organ, the business moves away from a pure private description more towards the post office end of the spectrum. And so I would argue in what sense is a doctor's clinic? You're now maybe it's different out in the East Coast, but certainly in, in Ontario, your private doctor's office, please define for me in what way 
this is a private practice. And people will say, oh, I, I pay the rent. Okay, wonderful. You pay the rent. Can you control the customers that come in and out? No. Can you control the hours that you're allowed to work? No. Can you control um, when your staff work and how they work? Well, you have some control, but there's a heck of a lot of labor relations mm -hmm. <laughs> um, legislation around that. When you actually start, can you set the price of your services? No. Can you set the time of your services? Well, okay, yeah, you could talk longer, but you're, you're, you won't be able to stay in business. And so mm -hmm. when you look at what's going on in a so-called private practice, it's looking a lot more like something public. And I'll close with this. Hospitals in Ontario, people will say, oh, they're private corporations, right? They have their own board of directors and they have their own uh, executives. They aren't employees of the government. They aren't civil servants. Okay, let's run with that. The hospital can be closed at any time by the government. The hospital has to create a budget, which it submits to the government, the Ministry of Health. The Ministry of Health then adjusts as necessary and sends back a detailed funding letter to the hospital that the hospital must follow. If it does not follow, the government can go in and get rid of the board of directors. The government has control over hiring, hiring and firing. The government has influence over labor contracts between nurses and, and outside workers. So I could go on and on, but that so-called private institution is anything but private. And that's why most people look at the hospitals, at least in Ontario, I'm sure it's the same in the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And they say, yeah, no, it's a, it's a public hospital. And so we really have to unpack what the heck do we mean by public and private. And I would argue that we're so close to the public end of the spectrum that people have lost any sense of understanding of what a truly private delivery of anything would look like when it comes to medically necessary care. Right. Interesting. All right. Well, let's, let's move on. Um, let's talk a little bit about your, your talk. You're going to be talking for us. And uh, we had kind of come up with, uh, there's two, two basic themes you're going to talk about. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. So we tried to come up with a really sexy title and, you know, epistemology and, and uh, the proletarianization of, of medicine. But really, all, all we're talking about is who speaks for medicine and, and what is it that you are? Are you a member of a profession or are you a essentially a worker that delivers technological services? So one thing I've seen uh, uh, over and over when I get a group of doctors around a table, we're dealing with government, we're dealing with civil servants, um, is we get very sheepish and nervous about saying, no, this is actual reality at the bedside. This is what it's like to practice medicine. Let me tell you, because we get in this room and they'll throw up spreadsheets and PowerPoint presentations. And we very quickly feel like, oh my gosh, maybe I don't know anything about medicine. Maybe, maybe these guys are the experts. And, and so we've abrogated our role to be the people who speak for medicine. Part of it is because leadership is its own bailiwick. There's a lot to learn there. Policy is its own field of expertise as well. There's lots to learn there. But at the end of the day, physicians are the ones who practice medicine. And anyone from the outside is, as Aristotle would call it, a spectator of the truth. And I know that's offensive. I've said this to journalists and they'll bristle and get mad. How dare you say no one else can speak about medicine? I'm not saying other people don't know anything about medical diagnoses or conditions or drugs, therapeutics, investigations. What I'm saying is only physicians understand what it means to practice medicine. 
the struggles we face, the things that make it hard, the things that really help. And so just like riding a bicycle, it's the person who rides the bicycle that knows what it means to ride a bicycle and what it's like mm -hmm. to ride a bicycle. And you could write a, your, your PhD thesis on the physics behind bicycle riding, but if you don't know how to ride a bicycle, you've never ridden a bicycle, you are a spectator of the truth. And so we need to empower physicians, but at the same time, not empower them to be arrogant and dismissive of civil servants and people who really work hard in policy, but to simply encourage docs, give them the confidence and maybe some of the language, and this is the epistemology part, that they are the ones who know medicine. And so they need to be able to speak to it confidently and with compassion. And then the second part is about proletarianization, but do you want me to go there too? Uh, yeah, let's, uh, cause I, I think it's an interesting concept to, to and then maybe uh, I'll say this and then it'll become apparent when you answer it, but maybe the explanation why job satisfaction has decreased for physicians, but maybe yeah. you can explain what that means. Yeah, absolutely. So, so um, medicine, uh, we get, there are different kinds of organizations in society. So if you can see the work being done and you can see the outcome of a job done, uh, that kind of an organization is very easy to manage, right? Managers can come in and they can see, Chris, you're doing, uh, you're lifting bricks all day long. And at the end of the day, they can see the pile of bricks you made and judge whether or not you did a, you're a good brick piler or you're a bad brick piler. When it comes to things like education or peacekeeping or medicine, it's very difficult for managers to say, okay, let's come in and measure how much peace was kept today. Well, peace is a metaphysical concept. How do you measure peace? And so what they do, the managers try to turn peacekeeping into a procedural organization where they say, well, peacekeeping involves walking around. So let's measure how many steps you made. Let's measure how many times you talked with the public. Let's measure, well, it still doesn't get at the essence of this profession where you have professional peacekeepers. It's the same for medicine. So if I tell you to lose weight, exercise and, you know, change your diet um, and you'll have less heart attacks and strokes, how do we know my advice had any impact? It may, didn't, it may not have had any impact on you in 20 years. In fact, maybe your wife or your best friend had a greater impact on you changing your life, or maybe some other life event changed your life, or maybe you just have great genetics. So we have no concrete way for a lot of what we do in a coping organization, that's what these organizations are called, to determine whether or not the work I did actually made a measurable definitive outcome. It can when I'm changing a hip, right? I'm putting in a titanium hip, but even there, when the surgeon is actually changing the hip, it's very difficult to judge whether or not this particular surgeon is doing a great job or not. So this is what it means to be part of a profession. And so in the talk, we'll unpack this thing called the social institution called a profession. Engineering is a profession, law, accounting, medicine, and how that differs from being a technical deliverer of services. How is it different to be a drill press operator versus a, a master machinist who's actually making judgment calls and, and trying to solve problems and using creativity and, and doing things that you can't actually see or measure, but you can actually 
hopefully see the outcome sometimes, but a lot of times you can't even see the outcome unless we get our handle on what exactly medicine is. So this is actually the ontology of medicine to use more philosophical words, but what, what is it actually that we're looking at? Is it about delivering a technical service or is it about a profession that will determine who gets to control it mm-hmm. and who gets to define it? And mm-hmm. so it's linked to the first half about who gets to speak for medicine. I think doctors do. And I think physicians are members of a, of a profession. And to conclude, it's not for physicians' benefit. Mm-hmm. We need to protect the profession of medicine for patients. It's better for patients. If you turn me into a deliverer of good blood pressures, uh, that's not going to be good for patients because I'm going to have a very, very different approach to providing care. In fact, care may even evaporate if all I'm defined by is how well I can control someone's blood pressure or their hemoglobin A1C. So that's what we want to talk about. But the overall gist is to empower physicians to say, you know what, I, I know I don't really totally understand all these uh, spreadsheets and, and the PowerPoint presentation and all the civil servants in the room, but I am the only physician here. I have to speak up and say, okay, I hear what you guys are saying. I don't really understand it all, but this is what it's like to practice medicine. This is what medicine is. And if we are doing something that's compromising this, patients will come to harm. And that's what we need more doctors doing is speaking up, getting into those leadership roles, having an influence. And unless you have these things to arm yourself, it becomes overwhelming and daunting and, and uh, intimidating. Right on. Okay. Well, that that's great. So yeah, I think, you know, just to, to kind of maybe summarize some of that in my own way of looking at it, as we become more, more and more ruled by scientism, there's this idea that some overarching authority in the case of COVID to be a medical officer of health can mm-hmm. tell physicians exactly how they should treat patients yes. and, and make a general rule. And we run basically, like you say, like an assembly line and we run the patients through our office in the way that we're told. And yep. that is the way it goes. And, and I, I think that that feeling that we're bound to just follow guidelines and follow cookbook recipes and not really treat our patients as individuals has really decrease the satisfaction of, of physicians. And maybe Huge. the reason why we're seeing less, uh, shorter, shorter work weeks, shorter careers in physicians, and which is part of the struggle of finding enough doctor services in Canada, really. Yeah, so, well said. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, Sean, listen, I think that's a good point to end on. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Um, we look forward to meeting in person and have a, having yeah. a beer, shaking hands, all those things yeah. that we used to do before COVID and uh, really looking forward to the conference. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you.